Thank you for listening to our Spectator podcast. Before you start, I'm happy to announce that we have a new Spectator Christmas subscription offer over the festive period. Subscribe to the Spectator for yourself or for a loved one this Christmas, and you'll receive a copy of the magazine and full online access for £99 for one year. That's £50 off the normal rate. Plus, you'll receive a free bottle of Paul for your troubles. To access the offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash champagne. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Isabel Hardman. As Christmas approaches, we take a look at the year that's just gone by. Over the next few episodes, we will discuss some of the most significant events around the world this year, from Brexit to Trump to Hong Kong. To begin with, I take a look at the year in British politics. So at the start of this year, Theresa May had just survived a no-confidence motion from her own party, but she was barely clinging on. Cross-party MPs, aided by John Burko, who was Speaker, defeated the government in vote after vote. There was a real chance that Brexit might have been reversed. But things are pretty different now. So what are the main events of 2019 and could things have happened differently? I'm joined by James Forsyth, Katie Balls and Jackie Smith, former Home Secretary under Gordon Brown, to discuss. So James, at the start of this year, Parliament was reigning supreme and it looked like nothing was ever going to change. Yes, I mean, it is, not to sound like a football manager, it has been a, a year of, of not two halves, I suppose, but been a year of four quarters, really. I suppose you had the beginning of the year where Theresa May was trying and failing to get things through Parliament. And you had the first attempt, obviously failed. Then you had her reaching out to Labour, that failed. Then you had the Tory shellacking in the European elections. And then the end of the May tenure, then you had Boris Johnson take over and immediately end up on a collision course with Parliament. That's the Ben Act is what led to the expulsion of those 21 Tory rebels, which I think when you look back at it, is one of the decisive moments in Boris Johnson securing that majority because that sent a message to leave voters that the Tory party was serious about Brexit under this new leadership. And then you had the general election, which has obviously returned a completely different parliament to the one that we had before and a parliament where the executive is going to be able to get its way and you're going to have a non-activist speaker and frankly we can all put down our copies of Erskine May because they won't be needed for the next five years you know and parliament is going to return to what it was under Thatcher and Blair somewhere where the executive gets its way on pretty much everything. Katie do you think that's a good thing? I think that ultimately, if you look at the past few months in Parliament, it's been truly chaotic. And I think that even those who've been trying to get what they want through, I suppose, going against convention in terms of taking over the order paper haven't been that successful in doing it. I mean, ultimately, they did manage to delay Brexit to a degree. But then we end up with a general election and the public took the view to reverse that thanks to the voting system we have. I think there are some who do think that MP should have more control as well. You have your book in which you've spoken about, obviously, select committees and, and the movement there. But I think that it will make a change and potentially a positive one to see a government actually being able to achieve its policy objectives and ultimately having a manifesto that we can expect to see in action. And I think there will be extra things as well because ultimately this has been a very risk-averse manifesto. But I think that 
this government is not going to be risk averse. They are bullish now. They have a majority of 80. And I think there's going to be lots of things they will do, which might drive some a bit mad, <laughs> might surprise others. But it is going to be a government which, in some ways, I think will try and be fairly revolutionary. And Jackie, Labour committed itself to a second referendum after a lot of jostling and rebellion on its own benches. Looking back now, do you think that was a mistake? I think it was a mistake to take so long to determine what the position was. And actually, I think that the the roots of our defeat in this general election go back to the 2016 referendum when Jeremy Corbyn went on holiday for a fortnight, frankly, because things could have been so different had he potentially put his back into it at that point when he was actually popular. As soon as that referendum was lost, and whilst Labour continued to have this policy of ambiguity, then things were always going to be difficult. And I'm afraid even committing to a second referendum was slightly half-hearted. And that's what the British people noticed. They noticed that Labour did not have a clear position on Brexit. If you were a Remainer, you thought that there was a good chance that Labour and certainly Jeremy Corbyn wanted to leave. And if you were a Lever, you thought that Labour wanted to remain. So it was always going to be difficult. And incidentally, on this point about Parliament, my view this year is that Parliament has done its job. You know, let's not forget the country is split down the middle. Parliament represented the country. Arguably, I suppose people might say with slightly more Remainers, but actually they they did what you would hope Parliament would do, to scrutinise, to hold things up in order to try and get to a better position. It failed, but that was their job. They weren't acting unconstitutionally or in a way that was unreasonable in the way that they behaved. James, do you agree with that? I think all signs have bent the rules, but I think some of the bending of the rules by the Remain faction in Parliament has been the most egregious. You know, it is not good practice to push through complex legislation like they did in a in a day or so. I also think to, to go back to Katie's point, I mean there is an accountability issue here, which is, you know, in that Parliament, you know, and I think you I think you saw this actually in the, the election results, the public's frustration with this. The public was on left wondering, so Brexit isn't happening, the government say they want it to happen. Part, Parliament is stopping them. Who do we blame? And I think I think it did create that sense. I also think there is a problem, which is it would be very different if all these MPs who did move to stop and delay Brexit, nearly all of whom I noticed came out for a second referendum in the end, had said in the 2017 election that that was what they were planning to do. They didn't say that. You know, I think if you stood on the platform of saying... I will go to Parliament and I will do everything I can to stop Brexit or delay Brexit or soften Brexit, then it's perfectly reasonable to do that. I don't think it's reasonable to get elected on one prospectus and then act in a different way. I think you know there was an election in 2017 and if people thought Brexit was a bad idea then, after the referendum, they had a chance to tell their voters that and a lot of people didn't tell their voters that and then came back to Parliament and did everything they could to try and stop it. And Katie, one political upheaval this year that hasn't really lasted the year, maybe not even lasted one season within the year, was the formation of the independent group, which then went through several different name changes before splitting again. Have we got any long-term consequences from, from that at all? 
Well, it was Tigger for a while, and I think that was probably the happiest stage for this group was the Tigger stage. And it became evil. Uh, <laughs> yes. And they moved to Change UK. They had a very strange logo. It looked a little bit like a deconstructed zebra. There was put on a bus, which would have cost, I think, a large chunk of their money. It's worth pointing out that when they first launched that week, they had momentum behind them. And obviously not the Labour group, but they had this enthusiasm behind them. They got a good showing in the media. The initial polling was promising. You know, they weren't beating Labour, but it seemed that they were tapping into something and you you got the sense that perhaps this was going to be the you know the new center party everyone in Westminster has spent about two three years talking about in the European elections I think there were a few mistakes they made along the way and ultimately that they didn't win you know a single MEP and the Liberal Democrats emerged as that I think it's interesting when you look back at that group of Change UK now they've all been on various journeys some tried to stick in that group even though it became increasingly depleted others moved to the Liberal Democrats like Chucker a minute, but I correct me if I go wrong here, but I don't believe that a single one of that group is still in Parliament, and I think that that shows a few things one of which is how difficult our parliamentary system is if you are not in a main party ultimately it first past the post makes it incredibly hard to break through even if you're in a third party and I know some would say SNP are the third party but on a UK wide scale the Liberal Democrats you do get squeezed and I think the fourth is what is the centre of politics and is it appealing because it does seem as though we keep going through these conversations and potentially political moves where we say oh it's so you know people complain that they don't feel like there is a centre in politics anymore Labour's gone to the left the Tories they say have gone to the right but yet when we have these centre parties they tend to not actually fare that well at the ballot box so perhaps that is clearly in part the voting system which I think makes it harder the odds are stacked against you but it can't just be that so I think that there needs to work on that messaging and as we are now looking at you know almost 100% though British politics does say nothing should be guaranteed the UK will be leaving the EU by the end of January I do think this centre movement which is a pro-EU movement in some degrees is going to have to do some soul searching about how it pitches itself going into 2020 is it a rejoining movement is it about a softer Brexit Brexit or is it about actually finding some things outside of Brexit because it hasn't worked in the past year? Now Jackie there were a number of other Labour MPs who had seriously considered leaving their party and going independent not necessarily as part of what was the first and actually only wave of MPs to leave but they didn't and they were persuaded not to do so by Tom Watson and others around him. Now Tom Watson has obviously now stood down from Parliament and Labour have had their worst defeat since 1935. So had more Labour MPs gone over, do you think they would have made at least a force that would have frightened those around Jeremy Corbyn sufficient to remove him as leader or actually become a a proper electoral force rather than the embarrassment that the independent group for change or whatever they want to be called today have become? Well, I think that's a very fair point, which I will come to after I've said, James, you've got a bit of a cheek saying the most egregious thing that happened in Parliament was done by the Remainers when Boris Johnson illegally prorogued Parliament and then pretended he couldn't get his legislation through in order to cause a call a general election. But anyway, to move on to the, the the very fair point about Tom Watson, you know, I'm old enough to have lived through the SDP in the 1980s. And I think that proved to us at that particular point that, as Katie says, with the two party system, it is actually very diff- difficult to create a third centre party. And that's certainly what appears to have been proved this year. 
But you're absolutely right about the role of Tom Watson. I believe that there were quite a few Labour MPs who were at the very least revving up to leave and join Change UK or TIG or whatever it was called at that particular moment. And essentially, if you remember, Tom Watson made quite a good speech and made an important intervention in which he essentially said to Labour MPs, I've got this, guys, don't worry. There's another way that we can get rid of Jeremy Corbyn without having to leave the Labour Party. He then did two things. He failed to really deliver on that promise and then he buggered off at the important moment. I'm, I'm, I think it would be fair to say I'm a little less than chuffed with Tom Watson's approach to this during the course of the year. Now, James, a, a, another movement that failed was the Stop Boris movement, which obviously has not succeeded in its aims at all. Why did it fail? Because it had, there had originally been such a swell of feeling against the now Prime Minister in Parliament amongst Tory MPs that it didn't seem he was sufficiently popular to win the Tory leadership. It failed because the Tory party came fifth in the European elections with less than 10% of the vote. The party needed someone who could transform its fortunes, and he was the person. The party had needed to rally Leave voters to its standard, and if they had elected Jeremy Hunt, for example, someone who campaigned for Remain in the referendum, it wouldn't have done that. You know, the, This Tory victory can be very simply explained by the fact that they got over 70% of the Leave vote, while the Remain vote remained divided. And I think that is what it is. I also think the other reason why it stopped was Tory MPs wanted to save their own seats and they could sense that he was the person to do it for him. And I think he was also in some ways lucky in his enemies. I think some of the people who ran around briefing most heavily against him were people who were not the most unhelpful people in the world to have as your opponents. Katie. Yeah, I mean, I think there were a few factors. There was a case before he won a majority of 80. I think that's perhaps improved his popularity. But within the Tory party, Boris Johnson was not particularly popular. But ultimately, I think there was just a sense that he is the person you turn to in a desperate situation, perhaps be it reluctantly, because lots of MPs... And some ways they're a bit jealous. Others think he, you know, was bad with detail, that he got away with things that they wouldn't and it, it made them annoyed. But I think there was just a sense that he was their best bet. The other thing I think he was helped by was Dominic Raab, who emerged ultimately as, I suppose, the harder Brexiteer, the more Thatcherite Brexiteer, the person that if you were a member of the One Nation Tory caucus and you wanted, I suppose the closest thing to an enemy in the leadership race. I think that Dominic Raab, the various things he said, like, for example, how he wouldn't describe himself as a feminist, how he was he was probably the most pro-proroguing. Obviously, history tells us Boris Johnson went on to do that, but he definitely ummed and erred around it compared to Dominic Raab. So I think a few of those things meant that if MPs began to come around to the idea that they had to have a Brexiteer, Boris Johnson almost appeared softer and perhaps a little bit cuddly next to Rob, and I think that was a factor. Jackie, do you think that Boris's critics really missed how to how to work against him? They they have sort of become afflicted by something that Toby Young described in the magazine as Boris derangement syndrome. Is that something you recognise? Well, I may even be a, a victim of it myself. I mean, you know, having worked with Boris when I was the Home Secretary and he was the Mayor. I do think that he is somebody who is sometimes short on detail and clever but lazy and all of those other criticisms that have been made of him. But he's also clearly able to grab a moment, coin a phrase when he doesn't become too sort of verbose. 
Perhaps the most significant thing that he did was to choose the right advisor, because I am in no doubt that Dominic Cummings has played an absolute blinder in terms of advising him and has put him in an extremely powerful position. I do wonder, and I'd be interested in what others think about this, you know, there's a bit of discussion going on today about whether or not a majority of 80 means that Boris Johnson will become, and, I, and I've never quite seen this in him, but will become the sort of centrist, modernising Tory, liberal Tory, or whether or not he will go, uh, certainly in terms of Brexit, hell for leather, including, if necessary, leaving at the end of December if he doesn't manage to get a trade deal effectively on a sort of no-deal basis. And I'm like not quite sure which of those routes he's now going to take. Well, th- let's move on to that shortly. But but just sticking with you, Jackie, and sticking with scary advisers to leaders, Labour obviously became fixated upon Dominic Cummings, but there was a slight irony here in that they had Seamus Milne and Carrie Murphy around Jeremy Corbyn. How responsible are those advisers, not just for what happened in the election, but for the way the party articulated or didn't articulate itself in the months running up to that? Well, it's my view that Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't be the leader had he not been surrounded by people who essentially sort of locked him in the the leader's office in order to prevent him from going. And the influence of Seamus Milne, Len McCluskey to a certain extent, Carrie Murphy certainly, I think has been absolutely fundamental in both the failure to quickly make up our minds about what our Brexit position was and to do what I would have wanted us to do earlier, which was to take a stronger Remain position and some of the failures of organisation of the election as well, because it seems quite clear and, and, you know, it was suggested early on in the election that Carrie Murphy had decided that we would somehow or another take an untargeted approach where we were going for all seats. And it certainly felt like that if you were fighting the election. So the people around Jeremy Corbyn deserve as much, if not more, criticism. And of course, Seamus Milne is, is largely responsible. Well, Jeremy has enough of it himself, but Seamus Milne is largely responsible for Jeremy Corbyn's failure to get on the right side of almost any foreign policy issue, as far as uh, as far as I would see it. But they're not a homogenous group. You know, things are not all warm and cosy, even before this general election defeat in the leaders' team. And one of the stories of the year from the Labour point of view was actually, you know, people coming and going, people being shifted, you know, Carrie Murphy being shifted out of the leaders' office essentially over to Labour Party headquarters, but really still holding on to the reins and who was really in charge. So it's all been a bit of a not not at all helpful shambles as far as the leaders' office is concerned. Now, moving on to the election, James, what was your key moment or your key moments that that really showed what the result might be? I think the key moments are, I would say, the things that create the result are the decision to expel the 21 Tory MPs who vote against the Benn Act at the risk of, of raising Jackie's ire, the decision to prorogue Parliament and the Supreme Court verdict against Boris Johnson. Because I think these actions show that he was doing everything he could to try and get the UK out on the 31st of October. But I think the most transformative moment is the deal. The deal suddenly changes the dynamic. When it looked like no deal was very likely, the Lib Dem policy of revoke seemed to lots of people a proportionate response. As soon as there was a deal, it seemed extreme. I think the deal enabled the Tories to hold on to those seats like Cheltenham, Winchester, Romani seats and their Romani voters while going, 
hell for leather for Leave voters in Labour seats. And that was what was so potent about that. The reason the majority is so big is that the Tories netted out in London, you know, lost two seats, gained two seats. And they held their remain seats against the Lib Dems. And then they basically then swept through the Red Wall. And that is what created this big Tory majority. So the moments you've named were, were before the election campaign. So it sounds to me as though you don't see a transformative moment during the campaign. And actually everything was sort of set before I mean, it started. Politicians and journalists. You know, generals fight the last war, we fight the last campaign, and we all were watching to see if this was 2017 over again. It wasn't. It was another case of, I think, of actually of campaigns don't change very much, which is the normal rule, and 2017 was the exception that proved the rule. And so I think, I think all of this was actually set in place before the campaign. I think, but you know, the one element of the campaign which I think mattered, which was actually unveiled at Tory conference, was that get Brexit done slogan. Because that was so potent because it appealed to leavers and then it appealed also to people who had voted Remain but just wanted this over with so the country could move on. And I think the problem for Labour was Labour was saying to people, oh, we can have another referendum next year, which I don't think that many people really wanted. And then the Lib Dems seemed to be in total denial, you know, Bobby Ewing shower style about the whole thing and trying to pretend that the last three years hadn't happened. Katie, for you in the election campaign itself, were there any standout moments, even if they weren't particularly transformative for, for the result? Yeah, I think there were a few. And just briefly on what James was saying, I mean, I've heard a member of Boris Johnson's team say to me that, you know, campaigns don't change much. Ultimately, if you want to land your core messages, you need to build it up. And I think that's why as soon as Boris Johnson entered number 10, you had those core priorities, which were then reflected in the election. So Brexit, the NHS, law and order, and they just doubled down. I think if you're talking about things that specifically happened in that campaign. Then I think that Jeremy Corbyn's Andrew Neil interview, in my mind, was a moment. It was pretty disastrous for the Labour leader, perhaps that's putting it kindly, on several counts, I think, on anti-Semitism, when he refused to apologise. I think that, that you got the impression that was something that had cut through. And also it was around the time of postal voting and all the postal voting as far as we can tell and now we're able to you know try and get something from that it seems to suggest it was very bad for Labour you know not just normally bad it was you know new levels of it so, so I think that that was a big moment on that end and I think that again for the Tory campaign I mean Linton Crosby likes to tell people that campaigns aren't there for journalists to enjoy. It definitely felt like that from the Tory point of view. It was just, you know, saying the same thing every single day. But I think in doing that, they managed to land their messages. I think near the end, the point when I think people got a little bit jumpy was the pictures of the boy on the hospital floor. And that quickly changed the conversation but it clearly didn't have the same level of cut through now had the election run on for another week or two perhaps the NHS would have become the dominant story but I think in terms of timing the Tories managed to have the broadly speaking the type of boring election they wanted to. Jackie Katie mentioned Jeremy Corbyn's Andrew Neil interview but we obviously didn't get a Boris Johnson Andrew Neil interview do you think the lesson from this election for future leaders wanting to f- learn the lessons from this campaign for the next election is avoid scrutiny. You can actually hide in a fridge if you wish and everything's going to be okay. I I do actually worry about the the next general election campaign because you're absolutely right. The lesson from this is just say no when it comes to those super hard interviews. You can just about manage it with, you know, Holly and Phil on the this morning sofa but don't put yourself into a difficult situation, which means that the next general election campaign, 
has the potential to be even more boring. And incidentally, I think James was exactly right to focus on the things that happened before the campaign started. The most fundamental mistake for Labour was to agree to allow this general election to happen in the first place. Because had they not, of course, Boris Johnson would have had no choice but actually to carry on with his withdrawal deal, which he probably would have got through Parliament sooner or later, and probably not that much more later. And then he would not have been able to rest on the extremely powerful let's get Brexit done argument. You know, he had to essentially say, oh, no, no, you're not letting me get it through so that he could say to the country, you've got to help me out of this stalemate, which didn't really exist, except Labour, the Lib Dems and others allowed him to do that because they accepted the argument about a general election. And finally, James, we are in the first few days of the new parliament. There's lots of bewildered looking new MPs wandering around, but there are also a lot of our journalistic colleagues who seem to be walking around with a note of relief in their voices saying it's going to be quiet for the next few years. I think this is because they're finally going to see their families after so much political upheaval. Are they right or is this yet another prediction that's going to go wrong? I think it was very telling that the Tories held back a lot of their ad spend until the final days of a campaign. And then the the weekend before polling day, they released this video basically just saying stop the arguing. And the, the essential message of that video could be just make politics go away. Vote Conservative and politics will go away. And that, I think, was very potent. I mean, people are... People are just fed up with politics impinging too much on their lives. And I think this this return to, you know, the prime the government announces it's gonna do something, it brings it to Parliament, it passes through Parliament, you know, and then the government gets sets about delivering it. I, I think voters will welcome that change. I think it creates a challenge for the Tories though, because there is no one to blame now. This 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 is an accountable government. As all, I mean, this is the genius of first past the post. As all majority governments are, you can at the end of the, at the end of a term, you can say, well, you promised us you were going to do this, this, and this, and this. Have you managed to achieve what you promised? And I think the big challenge for the Tories is they have put together a new electoral coalition. And I think they are right, Boris Johnson is right about the long-term things that these places need to prosper. But there also needs to be some short-term improvements so that in four years' time, these voters can turn around to their constituents and say, look, you know, it's morning in Great Britain again. Doesn't it feel better here now than it did four years ago? Thanks, Katie, James and Jackie. And to read more from Katie and James, do pick up an issue of the Spectator Christmas edition out now. Tomorrow, my colleague Cindy Yu will be taking a look across the pond. She speaks to Freddie Gray and John Rick MacArthur, president of Harper's Magazine, about the year that Trump's had. Do tune in then.